go to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 5 to verse 15, and then we're going to read uh, 25 through 34. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will repay you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Picking up at verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life, as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace... Will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. Father, we submit our time this morning to You, and we pray, Lord, that You would do a work in our hearts through the power of Your Word, that Your Spirit would bring that Word to bear, and You would teach us some things that we very much need to know. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning and happy Mother's Day. They were having a sale over at Harbor Freight Tools, so I bought my wife a gift certificate. 
Uh, I'm anxious to see how she puts that to use. I was going to suggest a really good, you know, uh, cordless impact wrench. To, to say that I've been chomping at the bit to, to look into this marvelous theme of prayer with you this morning would be a very great understatement. God has been taking me back to school on this whole matter of prayer over the last roughly two to three years. And I'm not saying that He's done anything mysterious or subjective. It's simply been His Holy Spirit pointing out to me things that, that I've missed in His Word. Things that I've seen hundreds of times but didn't quite register (laughs) because I'm a slow learner. When Dan Williams came back from the North American Week of Prayer in Kansas City last year about this same time, God started pressing me for a more accelerated learning curve on this theme. And then three weeks ago when Debbie and I attended that same gathering in Kansas City, God jolted that learning curve into boot camp mode. And I have to say, He now has my attention. And I'm pretty sure that He wants the attention of some of you in this room on this matter of prayer as well. The exam for me after that boot camp came this most recent Monday night at our elders meeting, and and I failed it. We always devote a a good portion of the elders' meeting, the first part of the meeting, to prayer. Each of the elders prays, and when it came to my turn, I prayed pretty much the same way I always have. I just laid out for God a long list of needs that I knew existed in this body among these all of you dear people. And, uh, of course, I, I gave God lots of detail so that he would have enough data points to handle it well. And then, and then it was my brother Kerry's turn to pray, and not long after he started praying, I realized that <laughs> he was the one praying in keeping with all the stuff that God had been teaching me, and, and I wasn't. The light had been kind of flickering on and off for the last few weeks, and now finally it was just on. And I'm not saying it's once and done, not at all. I'm really skillful at messing with the light switch. And God is really good at turning it back on over and over again. But right now, the switch is on. And I have to tell you, it's it's as if I have been standing for all of my Christian life in the middle of a vast forest, and each tree in that forest has been some need in my life or in the life of somebody that I cared about. And I've fixed my attention on this tree and then on this tree and then on another, all the while feeling an impossible burden because I thought I shouldn't miss any of the trees. But always knowing that I was never getting any further than one small grove in that forest. (laughs) Well, then God very recently sort of grabbed me and He lifted me up above all those trees until it was it was actually hard to make out any one individual tree. And, and then I got a glimpse of the forest. And it was as if He was saying to me, Tom, it's time for you to see with very different eyes. 
Here's the forest. Where would you like to start? See, God was making clear to me that He does not need me to tell Him about all those trees, all those needs. He knows every single one of them infinitely better than I ever will. And Jesus says that in this passage. And what He was saying to me is, it's time for you to know my heart for your prayers. And that's not what you have thought that it was. And please let me be very clear. I didn't hear a voice from God saying that to me. And I'm not commenting here about anyone else's experience, but so far in my 45 years as a child of God, when the Holy Spirit has something to say to me, when He talks to me while I'm praying or at any other time, He simply brings to my mind and my heart the things that He has clearly shown me and you in His Word. Which, by the way, is one huge reason that I believe His Word must richly dwell in our hearts. On the second day of that week of prayer, one dear brother from Ontario, Canada, who talks like Lenny does, asked me a very simple question that I hope I will ask myself daily for the rest of my life. That question was sort of like a sledgehammer punctuating three years of the Spirit's prompting through the Word. He said, He said, how often do you ask God what His prayer request is instead of just telling Him yours? That's really what the whole conference in Kansas was about. It was about learning to talk to God about His prayer requests instead of just assuming that His are the same as ours. The whole conference revolved around the answer that Jesus gave to His disciples in Luke chapter 11 when one of them said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray. That will be our request of God over these next three Sunday mornings. Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus' response to that request in Luke 11 was a very concise, sort of abbreviated version of what is traditionally called the Lord's Prayer. Of course, it would much better be called the Disciples' Prayer because it wasn't for Jesus, it was for the disciples. You can be real sure of that because one of the aspects of that prayer is to ask God for forgiveness and Jesus never had to do that. Jesus expands on that same five-point prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and He has a good bit more to say about some parts of it and that's why we're kind of camping out in that passage over these three weeks. I want to make sure you understand this will not be a comprehensive biblical theology of prayer. Other people have done that. It's very much worth doing, but that's not what we're going to do. It will also not be a comprehensive exposition of the disciples' prayer. Again, that's a worthy goal. That's not our goal for these weeks. So what is our goal? Our goal is for our prayers to reflect God's heart. It is for us to actually understand His big picture design, His agenda for our prayers. And for those of us who haven't been praying that way, it is for us to start praying that way. The simple fact is that God has not been silent about His intention for how we pray. When the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, He did. His response to that question was definitely not everything that God has had to say about prayer in the Bible. 
It was not a liturgy. It was not a script for our prayers. If it had been, he would have used the exact same wording in Luke that he used in Matthew, and that would be the only prayer that we find in the New Testament. None of those is the case. No, what Jesus gave his disciples was a wonderful template. It was a pattern that shows us God's big picture intention for our prayers. That's what we're going to look at. The disciples' prayer begins in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. And Jesus said, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The acknowledgement that God's dwelling place is in heaven pervades the whole Bible. And it comes with some really powerful implications, some of which we addressed in our worship time this morning. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Those two verses are essentially saying the same thing. Throughout the Bible, and by the way, there are many verses like that that we could look at. Throughout the Bible, the declaration that God dwells in heaven is an acknowledgement that He's the Creator and everything else is His creation, including us. And it's an acknowledgement that the Creator is sovereign over His creation. He's the one calling the shots. He rules over all. He does what He pleases. So when we pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name, one of the all-important things we're acknowledging is that He's sovereign and we're not. And beloved, if you control absolutely nothing and God controls absolutely everything, who do you think you should be talking to? You? Him. We're also acknowledging in that prayer that He is absolutely holy. Now we could spend a lot of time drilling down on what that means. Many people have. But we're aiming at big picture, so we're going to stay there. I'll simply say God is set apart from us and from all of His creatures in everything that is true of Him. In His character, in His attributes, in His works, in His ways. He is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, other than we are, and He is holy, H-O-L-Y, other than we are. He is sovereign, and we're not. He is holy, and we're not. But what makes this opening declaration in the disciples' prayer so utterly astonishing is the first two words, our Father. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. The unfathomable reality that we have been brought into blessed and eternal relationship with the perfectly holy High King of Heaven through faith in Jesus Christ and that He now calls us His sons and daughters and we call Him Father, our Father, is the most life-defining thing that any of us will ever know. In fact, Jesus says it is life. This is eternal life that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And that means intimate, personal knowledge. And that's what happens when we put our faith in Jesus.
And how does that amazing reality affect the way we pray? <laughs> well, we Americans have trouble imagining what it's like to be servants of a king. But I'll ask you to, to do the best you can with this little exercise. Imagine that you're a street person, a beggar in a vast kingdom. Your status is off the bottom of the status chart. One day an emissary of your very powerful king walks right up to you on the street and of course he's surrounded by fierce looking guards and he has this pouch in his hands that's sealed with the wax and with the signet, the seal of the king. And he hands you the pouch and he says, open that and read what's inside of it. Of course, <laughs> you decide you better do what he says and so you open the pouch and you pull out the document and you start to read it and, and you're just floored. You're, you're, you don't know what to do because the document is a decree written in the king's hand that adopts you as his son and confers on you all the rights and privileges and the entire inheritance, not just of a son, but of the firstborn son of the king. And right at the bottom of the document is an invitation for you to come and talk to the king the next day. You don't sleep much that night, and then the next morning, this emissary and his guards come and they escort you right through the front gates of the castle that you have never seen before except from a very great distance. And they take you right into the ornate throne room of the king. And there you are. You're standing in front of the most feared and respected and powerful person that you've ever even heard about. And he looks at you and he says to you with a big smile on his face, Welcome, beloved son. Never again will you have to be escorted into this room by guards. You're my son. You can come here anytime you want to. And you can tell me whatever is on your mind. And I want to know what that is. So son, what would you like to tell me now? What would you say first? Would you pop out a list of all the things that you'd like him to change in the kingdom and fix for you and read that to him? I don't think so. The thought of asking Him for anything would pale by comparison with your burning desire to thank Him, to praise Him, to express your gratitude that someone such as He would make someone such as you His Son. And of course, the reality is way bigger than that analogy because the King who has made you His Son, His Daughter, and has welcomed you into His throne room is the Holy High King of Heaven. We say, Lord, teach us to pray. And He says, okay, start with this. Our Father, our Father, who art in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. So, beloved, let's start there. If you're in the habit of diving straight to, into request mode, you need to change your habit. If your prayers do not always begin with gratitude-filled praise of God, this is a change that you can make beginning today. Start building the habit and the priority of praise 
and adoration of our great God and Savior by always starting with praise and adoration. That keeps it really simple. For the last several years, we've had a rule of thumb in our ministry group that we spend the first ten minutes of our prayer time praising and thanking God before anybody offers up any request. It's not a formula, but it has definitely enhanced our prayer time. This is about our heart for God. Jesus' template for our prayers begins with adoration and praise of our great God. And then He comes to our first request. Our first request of God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, that is our great and foremost request. That is the request that must inform and control and drive every other request that we render to God. See, there's a perfect kingdom coming. It's an eternal kingdom. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, are the current population of that coming kingdom. And God has left us here to use us to finish populating that kingdom by introducing men and women and children to our incomparable King. That's why we're here. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He went to His Father and He left us here to do what He had been doing to seek and to save the lost, to populate His kingdom. (laughs) Amazing tie-in, by the way, all the way back to Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now He's talking to His redeemed and saying, that's what I meant. The advancement of His kingdom is the priority that is supposed to inform and invade and control every request that we make to God. How do I know that? Because Jesus leaves no room for doubt here. To see that clearly, we have to move to the second request in the disciples' prayer. And then we need to look at what Jesus says about both of those requests just a little later in the same chapter. Matthew chapter 6. The second request is, Give us this day our daily bread. Now at first glance, you might look at the requests in this prayer and just figure they're all at the same level of priority. Unless you keep reading the same passage, which is generally a really good idea. If you read to the end of Matthew 6, you will come to the unavoidable realization that the request for our daily bread is not the one that we're supposed to be beating down the door to offer up to God. In Luke 11, after giving His disciples a very concise version of this prayer template, Jesus includes a parable about a man who knocks on his friend's door so persistently that the reluctant friend finally comes and opens the door and gives him what he's asking for. Beloved, God is not like that friend. God delights in responding to His children and giving us good things. But in that prayer, the part that Jesus really keys on is the attitude of the one who came knocking. And He says, be like that. Keep on knocking. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. And then look at how He ends that instruction in Luke 11.13. He says, if you then being evil 
Know how to give good gifts to your children. By the way, that's God's assessment of our parenting skills. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Where's the daily bread in that? See, that's personal. See, what we're supposed to beat the door down to ask of God is not daily provision for temporary needs. It is the work of His Holy Spirit in us and through us so that His kingdom will prosper on this earth through us. Now I want you to go back to Matthew 6 and look at, let's look at verses 25 to 34. In those verses, Jesus says five times, five times, stop worrying about daily bread. About your necessary physical provision. The words daily bread are a pretty clear allusion back to the manna in the wilderness in Exodus 16. God gave each Israelite exactly enough food for each day, one day at a time, and He gave them no more. Except on the day before the Sabbath, because they had to have two days provision. And it wasn't just daily bread. It was every provision that they needed. He gave them a flood of water from rocks. He made the shoes on their feet not wear out for 40 years. And He promises to provide every bit as faithfully for us who belong to Him through faith in Jesus Christ as we go about advancing His kingdom on earth so that we don't have to worry about all that other stuff. We ask Him to provide for us what we need each day, not so that we'll inform Him about what we need. Jesus says He already knows all that. We ask Him so we will be sorted out every day about who's actually taking care of our needs. We'll be going to the source instead of somehow thinking we're the source. Those prayers are our acknowledgement of our utter dependence on the One who actually controls all provision. It's not about us educating God. Beloved, the request for our daily bread is not the one we're supposed to major in. Jesus says God does that stuff for birds and weeds. Our prayers for God's daily provision of our temporary needs as we live in these mortal bodies under the curse are supposed to be modest requests, meager requests. Father, if You will give me enough for today, that will be just fine. And those prayers for earthly sustenance are to be prayed with thanksgiving in advance for the provision that God promises to give to us. Friends, prayers that beg God to take care of us are not prayers that honor God. Prayers that thank Him for His faithfulness and His provision, those prayers honor God. When it comes to the things that will not last into eternity, the things that pertain only to life on this side of glory, we are supposed to lay all those needs daily at God's feet and not keep going back and pointing at the pile at His feet and saying, God, why aren't you dealing with this? Consider for a moment how many of our requests to God are really requests for 
special exemptions from the temporary effects of the curse. God, please, please, please make my job less frustrating. All these weeds, all these thorns. Come on, God. Please remove the strain in my relationship with my wife. Please take this illness away from me. Guys, life under the curse guarantees all of those struggles and many, many more. And Jesus says, yes, yes, lay those requests at the feet of God and then leave them there and seek my kingdom. Instead of spending all our time in prayer asking God to exempt us from today's symptoms of the curse, we should be asking Him to use us to bring others into the kingdom that will forever undo the curse. See, those are the prayers. Those are the prayers that should fill our time and make us take longer in prayer than we had planned. Those are the prayers that should should make prayer delightful to us. Those are the prayers that that should be extravagant, mountain-moving kinds of requests. Requests that God loves to answer by doing exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine, by the way, according to the power that is at work within us. And that's the Holy Spirit. Now, if I've lost you or put you to sleep up to this point, I'm going to ask you to give me your full attention for a few minutes. Because where all of this kicks into really high gear is when we start approaching the second category of requests in light of the first category. When our requests of God regarding our temporary needs become informed and invaded and controlled by our zeal for His eternal kingdom. That's when our prayers start to match up with God's intention for our prayers. That's when our mundane, short-sighted, petty requests become transformed into eternally significant requests. See, Jesus does not say here or anywhere else in the Bible that we're not supposed to ask God to attend to our temporary needs while we live here on this earth in these mortal bodies. We are supposed to make those requests of God. But again, he says, make the request and don't worry about that stuff. Give it to God. He's got it covered. Your assignment is to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. So here is our continual, relentless, extravagant, beat-down-the-door request of the high and holy King of heaven who has made us His beloved children. Father, Advance your eternal kingdom by every means. And Father, use me to do it. Use every part of my life to do it, including the temporary passing things in my life. So what does that look like in real life? I'll give you a few examples and I pray that these won't limit your thinking, but will stimulate your thinking. Instead of Father... Please heal me of this debilitating illness that's holding me back. If you will, then I'll be ready to really be useful to you. Instead of that, how about this? Father, please heal me if that serves your kingdom best. 
But whatever you do about my illness or my wife's illness or my child's illness, Father, make me joyful in the midst of the illness and give me boldness to proclaim your great faithfulness and to show you off to people. To your people and to lost people so that your kingdom will thrive and grow through me this very day in the midst of this very circumstance. I've mentioned this before, but about 45 years ago, not long before God brought me to faith in Jesus, a man whose family lived just a couple of miles from ours went to a fireworks display, a public display on one July 4th, and then while he was at that display, some kids playing with bottle rockets managed to land one of the rockets on his wood shingle roof. By the time he got home from the display, his house was fully ablaze. We had a volunteer fire department, and they were good, but it sometimes took them a while to gather their people together. The way I heard it from what I believe to be a very reliable source, that man stood in his front yard with his family and with several neighbors and friends and watched his house burn to the foundation. And while he did, he said to his family and his friends and his neighbors with a smile on his face, I can't wait to see what God is going to do with this. And then he prayed with him. And I... Imagine that that prayer went something like this. Father, I can't imagine how you're going to glorify the name of your Son before men and angels and how you're going to expand your kingdom through our response to this. And Father, I'm excited to imagine how you're going to challenge and strengthen your body, your church, through their response to this. See, even if something like that happens to you, if you're actually zealous for God's kingdom above all other concerns, your whole grid for how you pray changes. Even the curse itself becomes an instrument for the advancement of the glorious and eternal kingdom of God. God must have looked kindly on that prayer because 45 years later, it's still impacting me. Maybe now it'll impact you. Instead of praying, God, why would you let this happen? God, where are we going to stay? What are we going to wear? How are we going to do without all those things in that house that had such great sentimental value to us? Instead of all that, this man's prayer was essentially, Father, it's going to be great to watch You show Yourself off through this and through us. Beloved, hear me out. If you pray that way and you encourage your fellow saints to pray that way, your greatest opposition is going to come from other Christians. Some will tell you that you're not being realistic. That you're oversimplifying the Christian life. Some will tell you that you're expecting way too much from yourself and from others. Some will tell you that you're not even being loving or sensitive or sympathetic. They'll tell you it doesn't actually work the way you're thinking that it works. 
They will do their level best to drag you back from the brink of such wild-eyed kingdom thinking back to the sanity of a Christian life that's centered around coping. Day by day. They'll try to pull you back to prayers that are filled with endless requests for God to lighten the impact of the curse on you, to exempt you and the people that you love from the suffering and injustice that fills this world. And beloved, they will be dead wrong. How many of your prayers are more about coping than they are about conquering? How many of your prayers focus so much on the temporary struggles that you face that you forget about the eternal souls of the people around you? How many of your prayers focus on getting by for another day instead of advancing the eternal kingdom of your great God and Savior? Today. How many of your prayers for your brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of the many sufferings of this life ask God to open their spiritual eyes so that they may know the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. That was Paul's prayer for the saints in Ephesians 1. How many of your prayers ask God right in the midst of the worst that this world can throw at you to fill you up to all His fullness, to cause you to know the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of His superabundant love that surpasses knowing? That's what Paul prayed for the saints in Ephesians 3. What part of those prayers depends on God fixing the temporary problems of the saints? What part of those prayers depends on God fixing things that won't matter a thousand years from now? No part. How many of your daily prayers right in the midst of the worst sufferings of this life declare with, with joy to God that all those sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us when our Savior returns? I'll give you one more example. And this one hits very close to home. In fact, it hits home. Instead of saying, God, when are you going to get around to rescuing my child who has turned his back on you? I've been waiting a really long time, Lord. And your answer seems further away now than it's ever been. When are you going to show me, Lord, that you really care? Instead of that prayer, how about this one? Father, You're the one I need to come to about this. Nobody else is sovereign over my child's heart, so I lay him at Your feet and I trust Your goodness and Your faithfulness in all of Your dealings with him. But Father, here's my bigger prayer. Here's my extravagant prayer. Here's my relentless, continual, beat-down-the-door prayer. High King of Heaven who has made me your child forever at the cost of your own beloved Son's life's blood, bring me back to my first love. Bring me back to the joy of my salvation. Strengthen me with your power through your Holy Spirit in the inner man. Fill me up to all the fullness that you have to offer. Make my delight in You and my love for Your kingdom overflow 
so that everyone around me sees Christ in me. So that your fame and your kingdom are displayed through me today. That's God's sledgehammer in my life. Are those the kind of things that you pray for every day? (laughs) Beloved, those are the kinds of prayers that fill the Bible. And that should tell us something about how we're supposed to be praying. I'm about done, but I want to show you a biblical example of this real quick. Go to Acts chapter 4. It was mentioned this morning. It was interesting to me, both these passages were mentioned in the worship this morning. Put one finger in Acts 4 and the other finger in Matthew 6 so you can kind of look back and forth. And by the way, if you can't do that without a bunch of clicking and scrolling, I have a real easy solution for you. It's called a paper Bible. We're picking up in Acts chapter 4 right after Peter and John have been turned loose by the temple authorities in Jerusalem. Right after those authorities told them, speak no more in the name of this Jesus. And they told those authorities, (laughs) yeah, right. We will not stop speaking in the name of of our King. It's not going to happen. When Peter and John had been released, they went to their own companions, verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. (laughs) And when all the rest of the believers gathered in Jerusalem heard what they said, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and they said, O Lord, it is You who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then they quoted Psalm 2. A great psalm of David about Messiah. In that psalm, God looks down on the rulers of the earth who are shaking their fists at Him. And you know what God does? He laughs. Because He's the High King of Heaven. And He says, (laughs) I will put My Son on His throne and you will bow down to Him. The prayer of the saints in Jerusalem in Acts 4 continues, verse 27, Truly in this city they were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, listen, to do whatever Your hand and Your purpose predestined to occur. Our God sits in the heavens and He does what He pleases. See, the starting point to the prayer of the saints in Acts chapter 4 was, in essence, our Father who dwells in heaven over all of your creation. Holy is your name. Then came the request. The request was very simple. (laughs) Acts chapter 4. Let me get there in my paper Bible. Acts chapter 4. Verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, all those powerful men, and grant that Thy bondservants may speak Thy Word with all confidence, while You extend Your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of Your holy servant Jesus. See, their first request was, God, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And by the way, use us. And do your whatever you want to do 
on this earth, Lord. All your miraculous things that you do to draw men to faith in Jesus Christ while you're using these jars of clay. And then comes the answer to their prayer in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. They asked God for boldness and what did God give them? Boldness. (laughs) And He put them to use. And the very next thing in this passage has to do with daily bread. The necessary temporary provision in the here and now. These baby saints, I call them baby saints because there weren't any other kinds of saints at this point. (laughs) This was not very long after the ascension of Christ. These baby saints held very loosely to material things. They treated all the things that God had put into each believer's hands as instruments for the equipping of the church so that God's kingdom would prosper through them instead of through somebody else. There was one married couple among them named Ananias and Sapphira who just pretended to have a kingdom mindset. They lied to the church and to the Holy Spirit that day, and they both died that day. And what was the outcome of all of that? (laughs) Acts chapter 5, verse 14 says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. In other words, God's coming kingdom was being advanced on earth through those baby saints. Beloved, if you determine by God's grace to pray the way He intends for you to pray, if we as a body determined by God's grace to pray the way that He intends for us to pray, we had better have our seat belts buckled because God says that when we do, when we ask Him to do in and through us the very things that He put us here to do, He will. Every single time that Jesus promised His disciples that if they would ask, God would do it, He was talking about God-centered, kingdom-focused prayers. He was talking about asking God to do through us what God already said He wants to do through us. By the way, that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not a mantra that we tack on to the end of every prayer so we can check that off the list. To pray in the glorious name of our King and Savior means that every single thing that we lay before God, that we speak in His presence, is about Him and His kingdom from beginning to end. What did God do through the men and women who actually prayed that way? He turned the tiny flame of the Gospel into a raging wildfire. Some days, in some places, thousands of people got saved. The Gospel touched the lowest of the low and the highest of the high in the Roman Empire. The Kingdom of God grew and prospered. And you know what was happening to all those saints while the Kingdom of God was growing and prospering? They were suffering greater persecution and more suffering and more injustice in this life than they ever would have experienced if they had just settled for coping. 
Because that's how it works when you live as a child of the King. A kingdom priority in your prayers will turn your world right side up. Because both our mindset and our actions are driven by our most fervent prayers when our most fervent prayers are driven by God's revelation. That kind of a prayer life will take away from you all manner of things that have previously felt important to you. It'll put big dents in your time and your bank account and your privacy and your safety as the world defines safety. It will wreak havoc on every semblance of predictability and control that you ever thought that you had. And it will fill your mind and your heart and your experience with the things that matter to God. And beloved, those are the really, really good things. Heavenly Father, High King of Heaven, Teach us to pray. We ask it in the glorious name of our beautiful Savior. Amen.